Last week, in the study of the book of John, chapter 7, I talked about the living water and the climax of when Jesus came at the end of the festival of tabernacles, just a review of those who weren't here. This ceremony began with the priest who had this golden pitcher, and he goes to the pool of Siloam, and he dips fills it up with water, and the crowd follows him. Thousands of people follow him back to the temple. And when he gets to the temple, he walks around the altar, and then he lifts up the pitcher and he pours out the water. And he does that for six days. On the seventh day, he does the same thing, but when he gets to the altar, he walks around it seven times, like they walked around the walls of Jericho. And he pours that water out. And it was at that very moment when he pours the water out that Jesus stood up and said this, John 7, 37, on the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures has said, rivers of living water will flow from them. That has to be one of the greatest moments in the gospels, one of the greatest moments in history where Jesus is describing the experience of what happens when you really believe in Jesus, the transformation that takes place, and then what he does in you, because those rivers of, of water flow out of you. You receive your satisfaction from Jesus, and that same satisfaction flows out of you to others, as we were singing in that last song today in worship. It's a powerful image that all of us need Jesus. He's the only one who can really satisfy that satisfaction. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from them. It was an incredible moment. Even soldiers who were standing there were literally paralyzed, hearing their words. They were left speechless. But what was the reaction of all the people that day? Well, John says that it was a mixed reaction. There was actually division. Look at verses 40 through 42. On hearing his words, some of the people said, Surely this man is the prophet. Others said, He is the Messiah. Still others asked, How can the Messiah come from Galilee? Does not Scripture say that the Messiah will come from David's descendants and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? Now there's three immediate reactions here. Some said, wow, this is the prophet that Moses prophesied about in Deuteronomy chapter 18. There will come a prophet like unto me. They said, this surely must be him. Nobody could speak like that. Others said, no, he's not, he's not the Messiah. There's, there's no way. The, the scriptures say when the Messiah comes, he will be born in Bethlehem. He'll be one of the descendants of David. This man lives in Galilee. It's a hundred miles from Bethlehem to Galilee where Jesus. But they were very misinformed. Jesus was a descendant of David. He had been born in Bethlehem. He was residing in Galilee. They didn't know that. But they were giving an opinion without being informed. Something that happens a lot today. There was really tremendous division because of Christ. Now, I would like to show you today that this division is something that is actually quite common when Christ is presented. In fact, Christ expected this to happen. Listen to Jesus' own words. Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword, for I have 
come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against his mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Strange word, aren't they, from Jesus' own lips? And this in Luke. Do not think I've come to bring peace on earth. No, I tell you, but division. From now on, there will be five in one family divided against each other, three against two, and two against three. Jesus did not come specifically to bring division. He's just saying that he will cause some to want to follow him and others will want to reject him. Ironically, the Prince of Peace is also the divider. So when my wife and I drive to California, you drive across, uh, we usually take Interstate 40, you drive across a sign there that says Continental Divide. The mountains run all the way from the top of the continent up in Alaska all the way to South America and it's called the Continental Divide and when the snow hits the waters fall either to the east or to the west and when that those rivers down below form they carry the water in distinct directions on one side to the Pacific and the other side mostly to the Gulf of Mexico that is a very good representation of actually what happens when you come to Christ Two people will hear the message of Christ. One embraces it and follows him. And the other rejects it. Kent Hughes writes this. We have all experienced this. Maybe we are at the store, in school, or at work. And we're talking animatedly with someone about a number of things. Maybe politics, education, or sports, or the weather. And then someone says something like, My life has really been different lately because of Christ. Suddenly there is a silence and a shuffling of feet. Someone coughs. Someone else looks at his watch. Ever experienced that? And says, I've got an appointment to get to or I'll be late. Another says, oh yes, I've got to go feed the dog. I must be going. But in reality, the man who had to feed his dog doesn't even have a dog. And the other person's appointment is not till the next day. It's true. There is this uncomfortable feeling that comes because talking about Christ causes division. Now, it's fine to talk about religion or Christ dispassionately, but not personally, not with passion. Today, there is a, a view that religion should be completely personal, should remain very private. That's where it is, but not public, not in the marketplace. Daniel, you remember Daniel in the Old Testament? One of our favorite stories, Daniel in the lion's den. Daniel did not believe that his faith in God should remain private. He was a very capable, competent leader, and they were jealous of him. So they twisted, sounds like a good politician, they twisted the law, and they misinformed the king. They said, there's, there's people that are disloyal to you, and one way we can test this loyalty, let's make a law that no one can pray to any god but you, because a dictator is a god, and since he has an ego that's so big, he says, fine, that sounds like a good law. All the while, the law's been made to catch Daniel because Daniel publicly prayed out loud. He opened his window and he prayed and people knew that he prayed. So once the law is passed, anyone who violates this law is going to suffer some pretty dire consequences. They're going to throw them to a, a den of hungry lions. Daniel now knows the law is passed, even though he is a very high official, they have done this to try to trap him, to make his religion very personal, very private, and keep it to himself. Well, Daniel could have just closed his window and prayed to himself, said his prayer not out loud, and no one would have known the difference. But his detractors knew that Daniel wouldn't do that, and they were right. 
Daniel 6.13. Then they said to the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, your majesty, or to the decree you put in writing. He still prays three times a day. Well, the story is so great because God sent an angel and closed the lion's mouth. And we still love that story because it's true. But our faith in Christ was never meant to be private, never meant to be kept personal. John 7, 43, thus the people were divided because of Jesus. When Jesus proclaimed that statement at that festival, just at that very opportune moment, soldiers had been sent from the leaders, the Jewish leaders, to arrest him. And they happened to be there at that very moment when Jesus made those statements. It says, some wanted to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him because Christ wasn't trying to get himself arrested. He wasn't trying to get himself killed. He was very careful. And when the time come for him to be arrested, to be killed, he never ran away from it. But he was very, very smart in conducting his ministry. So temple guards had been sent to arrest Jesus. They came back without Jesus. Finally, the temple guards went back to the chief priests and the Pharisees who asked them, why didn't you bring him back? Now listen to their answer. No one ever spoke the way this man does, the guards replied. An answer would have been, well, we were afraid of arresting him because the, we thought the crowd would riot. That would have probably been a, a decent answer. But really what happened, these soldiers were not prejudiced the way the leaders are. They actually listened to what Jesus said. The Pharisees never really came to ever listen to Jesus. They had these predispositions of who Jesus was. They had developed this hatred, this bias toward him. They never really listened to him, so the words never penetrated. These soldiers, they were just sent to do a mission. But when Jesus gets up and says, I am, I am the living water, all you who thirst come and drink and will be satisfied. They fell into the spell of those words, Jesus' presence, Jesus' words. In verse 47, it says, You mean he has deceived you also? The Pharisees retorted. Have any of the rulers of the Pharisees believed in him? No. This mob that knows nothing of the law, there is a curse on them. So the Pharisees are always so condescending, you know, only a slob like you guys, an idiot or an ignoramus like you would believe someone like, you know, people like us that are smart, intelligent, would never believe. And with the only exception of Nicodemus, because Nicodemus, you remember he's the man who went to visit Jesus at night, afraid for his position, that he would be shunned. Uh, we talk about this pressure today to conform with culture. It's very, very real. Well, Nicodemus felt that. But here's the moment where Nicodemus steps out. Look at verse 15. Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier and who was one of their own number, this is the Sanhedrin, this 70-member court that is deciding the fate of Jesus. So he asked his colleagues a question. Does our law condemn a man without first hearing him to find out what he has been doing? Well, that's a good question, Nicodemus. But they aren't interested in good questions. They aren't interested in facts. They aren't interested in, in whether Jesus is an innocent man or not. They've already made up their mind. They replied, are you from Galilee too? Look into it. You will find that a prophet does not come out of Galilee. Again, they're misinformed. Jonah came out of Galilee. And 
they have no idea that Jesus met all of the messianic prophecies of the Messiah because they weren't interested in looking at that. Harry Ironside, a man who traveled the world and who was a prolific speaker, once said, I have never met an infidel who has ever read one serious book of Christian evidence. This is often the case of those who are the biggest haters of Christianity. They've never really studied the evidence. There have been examples of some who have actually been challenged to do so, whether it is studying Josh McDowell, for instance, Lee Strobel is another one. If you haven't read the book by Lee Strobel, The Case for Christ, that's a powerful book. There's even a film about it. This is a guy who was an atheist, a complete atheist. He worked for Chicago paper, and he took on the case of trying to disprove Christ. And at the end of it, he winds up giving his heart to Christ and has been writing books ever since. So Lee Strobel, I highly recommend that Case for Christ. There's even a movie called Case for Christ. Nicodemus, instead of going the way of all of his colleagues, he decides to come out at perhaps one of the darkest times in Jesus' life and for himself. And from this point forward, he will be a believer. And I'm sure he was ostracized from that point forward, but him and another man named Joseph will claim Jesus' body off of the cross. People will sometimes say, I reject Christ or I, re I reject God because I haven't been able to find the answers that I need. But oftentimes, they haven't looked very seriously for those answers either. There are a lot of changes happening in our world today. Some of them are happening so fast that it is incredible. Technology, in many ways, is amazing. I made a phone call to Argentina this week, took 40 minutes, and didn't cost me a penny. And when we first went to Argentina, it used to cost us somewhere in the range of about 3 or $4 a minute. And it was prohibitive. It used to take about seven or eight hours to place a phone call. And I went to Sam's, bought everything on my phone, didn't, just passed up the register. I love technology. And I love computers. I love technology. But in so many ways, technology has such a dark side. It's pulled so many people down because the enemy is very, very real. In this age of technology, in this age of science, in this age of discovery, there is such an aversion, such an animosity toward Christ. And people who really, really believe in Christ with all their heart and following him, the lines are being drawn, clearly. People in the military are losing their pensions. If We've had several cases of men being court-martialed because they prayed in the name of Jesus or have refused to follow the cultural demands. It's becoming more and more pronounced. As I look back over my ministry, over all the different places, I started in California and then in all the different places in Argentina and Puerto Rico and now in Missouri, I see that exact same thing. People under my ministry, the two kinds of people, one that really embraced Christ and the other that rejected him. I remember I was in high school and I wound up leading several friends to the Lord in high school. I wound up winning this guy named Charlie to the Lord, and he really gave his heart to the Lord. He traveled with me to Alaska one time, spent about three months there. And then there was another friend that I led to the Lord. But a few years later, Charlie decided that 
it was a, too much of a demand in his life, and he walked away from God. And his life is a very, very sad story, a very tragic story. The other one is still serving God today. Some openly followed Christ, some openly denied Christ, saying God didn't care for them, wouldn't, care, wouldn't stop the tragedies they lived for, and it was in those moments of tragedy that they walked away from God. But others were like the soldiers. They said, no one ever spoke the way this man does, the guard replied. I decided on a way of kind of ending this message today and wrapping it up. So I wanted to share a parable, one of Jesus' parables with you, that's found that Jesus gave it at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. It's funny because we sang it in that last song, and I want to sing that song at the end of service again, the very last course. I was... I couldn't even have asked for a song that's more appropriate with a sermon. So this parable, this parable, Jesus told it to sum up his Sermon on the Mount. You find the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew and in Luke. Sermon on the Mount probably took Jesus maybe 20 minutes to say. It, we still marvel at it. It's the most incredible sermon that's ever been given. And he summed it up with this parable. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? As for everyone who comes to me and hears my words and puts them into practice, I will show you what they are like. They are like a man building a house who dug down deep and laid the foundation on rock. When a flood came, the torrent struck the house, but could not shake it, because it was well built. But the one who hears my words and does not put them into practice is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation." The moment the torrent struck that house, it collapsed, and its destruction was complete. So tragedy strikes us all, all of us, in some way or form, sadness, the things that we can't explain. It happens to all of us. In the story of Black Hawk Down, this captain, the enemy is shooting at the soldiers, and they come out, and they rush out to get in this Humvee, captain sitting in the passenger side, and there's a soldier over behind the wheel, bullets are flying, and the Humvee's sitting there, and the captain yells, and he says, drive, and the guy says, I've been shot, and the captain turns to him and says, we've all been shot, drive. That is the story of life, we've all been shot, but those, some people, when they get shot, hold that against God. God didn't save their mother from cancer, from dying, or God didn't intervene and save their marriage, or God didn't help them save their business. And these are questions they can't answer. We all are going to have questions we can't answer. Usually the people who walk away from God in those moments because of something, that was some tragedy, are people who didn't have a foundation on the rock. When your life is on the rock, the storm comes, you'll still be standing after the storm comes. So when Marilyn and I arrived in Argentina for the first time, we finally made our way to about a thousand miles from Buenos Aires, and I was driving a, a pickup truck, Ford pickup truck with this pretty long trailer with all of our major appliances and everything else. I'd put it on a train and sent it up there. We're about 20 miles from arriving at the destination when a guy pulls out, they have big high uh, sugar cane, pulls right out in front of us. I had to uh, dodge him. All those appliances went in a, a canal and were submerged in water. I pulled them all out, took months, even maybe a year to get those appliances going back again. And there was all kinds of problems. 
getting settled. Argentina had 5,000% inflation in those days. They would announce to you, if you're at the grocery store, everything in your cart just went up 10%. And you're, you know, you're the next person behind being checked out. Our kids were in school in a different kind of system, and they haven't fully learned Spanish yet. But we were trying to work our way through all of that. And then this huge challenge hit Marilyn and I that almost knocked us off our feet. It was so, so horrendous. I got up that morning. I was actually leaving out of town for a couple of days. So I said goodbye, and I took off. Well, Tucumán sits at the base of the pre-Andes. You can see the Andes. And they are magnificent, these Andes that are like 15,000 feet tall. And in front of them are what's called the Pre-Cordillera, the pre-mountains. And that's, Tucumán is built on those pre-mountains. So they have some horrendous storms there. When it rains, that water comes down those Andes and it floods. Well, I was about an hour away and it got really dark and started raining. And I thought, I better, I better just turn around and go back. Because it might be one of those storms. We had managed all that storm. But when I got back... My car, the water was running in, the, in, in my car, and my car quit. So I walked for about four blocks home, and the, the water is way above my knees. Swift currents is coming down. All the streets like this are just running full. When I finally got to the house, and it's dark, the electric's out, it's dark. Marilyn had our two kids, Karen and Eric, on a bed, and the water was flowing from the back of the house through the house, just like a river, just flowing right through the house. That was an incredible night. We find, it took us a while to figure it out. There were four houses in the back, and the elevation, they were a little bit higher, so we were the drain for them. Their water was flowing to us, and one knucklehead decided to drain this big mammoth pool in the middle of that storm. So that water kept coming in. That would happen to us three times before I finally figured out what to do. So I built this wall in back. I mean, I hired people and physically helped myself, built this beautiful brick wall with cement columns, and all those people had to figure out what to do with their own water. And the guy even had to drain his own pool a different way. And we stopped. We stopped. Oh, that was such a tenuous, stressful time. So I went to the landlord, who was this banker, and I explained this problem, which I knew he knew that house had that problem when we moved there. And so I said, I have deducted the expenses for that wall because I'd asked him to pay for the wall and he said he wouldn't so I said I deducted him and I handed him the rent. We were in this big bank in Tucumán and he was like a vice president and I handed him the money because everything's cash and he took that cash and he just threw it at me and just threw it all over the floor and he turned around and he walked off. So I picked up the money and left and I came back told Marilyn she says what are you going to do and I said I'm not going to do anything. I'm not going to pay him just going to wait for the police to come evict us. So I didn't go. First month, I figured there'd be police show up. Second month, no police. Third month, nobody came. Fourth month, I got all the money together, that original amount deducted, and every month, and I went back up, and I asked to see him, and they took me to his office, and I said, I came to pay the bill, and the guy was just as nice, acted like I was his long-lost cousin, took the money, and I walked out. When Marilyn and I, as we had thought about that, that storm, those three storms being flooded out. Like we, we, we would capture like 20, 30 frogs cleaning up in there. And we would have mud like that deep in that house. It took so long to get it all resolved. And we would say to ourselves, 
is it really worth it? <laughs> all, of this, all of this stuff we're going through. But we stayed. And we solved that problem. And that wouldn't be the last storm of our life. The storms would continue to come. In a different way, in a different angle, the storms have always come. But if your life is built on Christ, on the rock, you'll still be standing when the storm is over. If your life is built on the sand, there's no rock, you'll walk away. That's the division that Christ brings. Because when you embrace Christ, when you, like the soldier, said, man, I have never heard anybody speak like this man before, then your values change, your priorities change, everything about your life is affected, and you want to follow him with all of your heart.